Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues in the series, A Life That Pleases God. Faith, as described in Hebrews 11.1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We are on a journey to investigate what a life that lives by faith looks like. Today we look at the faith of Noah and faith fears God. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here is Heath with today's message, Faith Fears God. As everybody is finding their places, if you would like to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, we will also be looking at Genesis chapter 6. If you'd like to be finding your marks there, if you're a bookmarking person, if you'd like to be able to flip back and forth, we'll be going uh, there, or you can look at the scriptures that will be on the screen. By now, if you've been here any length of time, you know that we are preaching through Hebrews chapter 11, and a chapter entirely devoted to a singular subject of faith. Hebrews 11.1 defines faith very clearly for us. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's that logo. It represents something that is real. That isn't, we can't see it here, but we know it's out there, and we take that by faith. It's the conviction of things not seen, like a jury. Based on the evidence that we have, we can form reasonable conclusions about God. And we believe in him, we believe his story, we believe in Jesus and what he has done for us. We believe in hell, we believe in God's judgment against sin. And so Hebrews 11 begins with a definition of faith in verse 1, but I love it that Hebrews 11 isn't a one-verse chapter. Because if God says, live by faith, here's what faith is, you, like me, would look at that and say, oh, sure, I live by faith, I have faith, next, move on. I, I did that when I was a little kid. I've, I've got the faith part down. The thing we fail to understand is that faith is something, our first true step of faith is placing our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, but that is simply the first step in a life of faith, that we walk by faith. And to walk by faith, we need a good example, don't we? I don't care what job you've ever had, any job you've done, you have had intellectual knowledge given to you about that job, but then you also shadowed somebody, didn't you? Every job I've had has been that way. I don't care if it was foreign missions. I don't care if it was uh, when I was working bivocationally at Disney, when I was installing fire alarms in seminary, uh, or, where, when, or my first real job at Burger King. You know, they won't even let you make a Whopper until they make you sit in a crowded break room and watch an old VHS it's these little boxes you used to put in a box and it had movies on it. Uh, you watch a VHS on how to make a Whopper, but you know they didn't release you to make Whoppers until you watch somebody else on the Burger King crew make a Whopper. And so we, we need to see physical examples. And the guy that I got to observe making Whoppers maybe wasn't the best example, but he sure knew more than I did. And so I followed that. And similarly, the Bible in many places encourages us to examine the faith of other people and to imitate their faith. You say, whoa, Jesus is my only example. Well, Jesus is the ultimate example, let's, let's be honest. He's the, he's the supreme example. But does the Bible ever call us to imitate the faith of other believers? I can give you more than a dozen verses that tell you that. And not just the Old Testament examples. Paul himself, you know, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he talks about, he says, observe my life. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But we don't even have to just imitate the examples that we read. We can even imitate the faith of those that we see. Hebrews 13, 7, right after this treatise on faith and all these examples that God is about to give us, says, remember your leaders. Which ones? He says, those who spoke to you the word of God. He says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so we need human examples. And this word imitate here, it's the Greek word mimeomai. Maybe those of you who've been around a while, maybe it sounds like mimeograph. Any of you ever get those little purple pages in school? You know, and it's, a, it's, it's what we did before copy machines. And you'd get all these little mimeographs. These, they're copies of the original. No, they're not perfect, but they are copies. They are, they're meant to approximate that standard as close as we can get. And Paul says, as I do that with Christ... You do that in my life. And even Hebrews says, consider your leaders who are walking by faith. Consider the outcome of their life of faith and imitate that. We need good examples to follow. 
We don't have enough uh, to just move forward in a Christian life just through sheer intellectual knowledge. We've got to observe the life and the faith of other peoples. That's why in this church, if you go through our unity funnel, if you don't know what that is, stick around. We'll talk about it more. Uh, we don't just do big church and go home. My preaching is not enough to make you a fully-fledged disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm not so arrogant as to say that. What we need, though, is to get you into smaller groups, that's community groups, and we need you to get to know smaller groups yet. That is our D groups, our discipleship groups, where we put you one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-three in these groups. And you can observe the outcome of their faith and imitate their faith. We don't just ask you, hey, go out there and be a godly Christian. We said, hey, we've got trained examples here that will help you walk a life of faith. And so I encourage you, if you're not in a D group, call the office. We'll get you connected into one. Well, Hebrews chapter 11, he, he defines faith in verse 1, but then he describes faith all throughout the rest of the chapter through about 40 different examples of what faith looks like when we live it out in real life. And he calls us to imitate that faith. The example we're looking at today is in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. He's a familiar one. You're going to remember from Bible school and from when you were a little kid, it's the story of Noah. Now, we're not going to so much try to plumb the depths of all of Noah's life. We're going to limit the scope of our study of Noah to what God commends in Noah's life. So I'm going to read it to you, Hebrews 11:7, and I want you to see if you can identify what character attribute it is that God is highlighting when talking about a life of faith. It says, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. What is it that Noah did that earned the commendation of God that God said, by faith, this quality was present in his heart? It's reverent fear, isn't it? His reverent fear of God is what moved him to obediently build the ark that God had created for him, or that, that he was going to create uh, for the saving of the world, for the saving of his house, it says, and, and by which he condemned the world. That sounds bad, but we'll explain more about that later. The first thing I want to do is break down, number one, what is the fear of God? I don't think we ought to assume that we all have a good grasp of what the fear of God is. In fact, even singing about the fear of God this morning, maybe some of you were thinking, uh, isn't that a little kind of odd? I mean, it's talking about being terrified of God and scared of God and running away from God. Why are we singing about the fear of God this morning? Because there's more depth to the fear of God than perhaps many of us understand. Faith begins with an awareness of the holiness and the greatness of our God and then responds appropriately to that. That's really what the fear of God is. And whether or not you are related to him depends on what that fear looks like as it's lived out in life. So God revealed the sinfulness of man to Noah. It says in 11.7, the first thing he says about Noah is, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. So the fear of God, what precedes the fear of God always has to be a knowledge of God. You can't fear a God you don't know. You have to know things about God to fear him. And so God gave him a revelation, spoke to him, and gave him a warning. If you want to read about that warning, it's in Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, he talks about Noah in this way. He says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. We talked about that last week that Noah is the kind of guy that tried to include God in every area of his life. He walked with God. He talked with God. He let God speak back to him. Okay, so it was a, he conformed his life and his purposes to the purposes of God. He walked with God. But beyond that, it says, And God saw the earth, the place where Noah was living, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. He's going to kill everybody. And the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark. So God told Noah that the world that he was living in was corrupt. It's a word that means broken. It's destroyed. Noah, you're living in a world that's, that's condemned. It's uh, not something you can continue to live in. How bad was it? Well, in Genesis 6, 5, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's really a bad place to live. Somewhere around Detroit, I think. If you're from Detroit, don't email me. 
Uh, understand this about the days of Noah, though. It, despite how evil this is, and friends, this is, an, this is an unparalleled evil in the Bible. We're not there. Even the Roman Empire wasn't there, and it won't get this evil again until the very end of the days, and Jesus says it will return to the days of Noah. So this is, a, this is a kind of evil that you and I, despite how evil our land is, we're not there yet. So it was that corrupt, and here's what's really bizarre, is that evil to these people was so corrupt and so awful, and yet it felt normal to them. How do we know that? Jesus said in Matthew 24, 38, for as in those days before the flood, what were they doing? They're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're given in marriage. These are just average, normal, everyday activities. They did this, they went out to eat, they went on dates, they planned vacations, they went to school, they pursued a life and a family and a career. Everything felt normal to them. They had no concept that the way that they were living was being viewed by God as only evil continually. They had no idea. They thought they were okay. Didn't mean they were okay. They just thought they were okay. He says, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and then look how it describes them, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. That they only thought about evil continually felt normal to them. Are we there as a nation yet? I mean, I hate to bring up that, you know, that subject, but just shop at Target. <laughs> I mean, goodness, we, we're selling Pride Month t-shirts to children, children's sizes Pride Month t-shirts. And these are not innocuous little t-shirts with just colored rainbows and unicorns on them. They're shirts that says Satan uses the correct pronouns. So lest any of us think that this LGBTQ movement is just something sweet and wholesome, the church should get around it, lest you think that it's not motivated by the forces of hell, look at the t-shirts that they ascribe for themselves. At least Satan uses our correct pronouns. What's the idea? God won't. And so this, this evil that's just pervasive in American culture, it almost feels normal now, doesn't it? Because it's constantly being pumped into us through our TVs and our movies. And we're just going about life as normal. There's no concept that we should have some great revival and turn back to the Lord because it feels okay. It's what we've become accustomed to. We're marrying and giving marriage. We're eating and drinking. We're going about like life is normal. And there will be a day when we are unaware when the judgment of God comes. It'll be just like in the days of Noah. But it doesn't mean there wasn't a warning. God warned Noah. Noah warned his people that the judgment was coming. And still people didn't listen. It's like when we lived in Florida for 11 years. Uh, between the years of 96 and 2008, we lived in central Florida. And, and something that's just part of Florida, Floridian culture is hurricanes. I mean, it's almost a sport there. Uh, you, hurricanes don't, don't surprise you. It's not like where I grew up in North Iowa on a farm. And I mean, it was the Wizard of Oz. I mean, just a tornado. All of a sudden, the sky turns yellow, you know, and you get scared and you run to the basement and you get the transistor radio out, pre-internet. You get the transistor radio out and you wait it out. There was no warning, just bam, and it was there. Hurricanes, you see it coming a long way off. There's a warning. I mean, weeks out, the forecasters are telling you about these tropical storms that are gonna turn to hurricanes. They'll tell you when they're gonna hit, what strength they'll be. You know, they talk about all of these things and what you should be doing. People are not surprised by it. You go shopping at the grocery stores in Central Florida during a hurricane, it's like they hand out <clears throat> these hurricane tracking charts and people, they mark where the hurricane's going and its strength like they're scoring a ball game. It's, it's like a hobby to them. And so nobody's shocked by this. And yet, when the people on the news say, by the way, Floridians, you need to get out of town. It's gonna flatten your house. It's gonna drown you. It's gonna kill your family. A lot of people do leave those areas, but there's a lot of times they don't. Every single hurricane, somebody dies as a direct result. They didn't have to. In fact, just a couple years, uh, just uh, 2022, we had Hurricane Ian, 148 deaths tied directly to this hurricane. It's not that they didn't know it was bad or that they didn't know it was coming. It's that they just went about that like life is normal. And then the, the nature swept them away. That's a little bit like what the fear of God is. These people in Florida, they were confident. We can ride it out. We're going to board up our windows. We'll be fine. We'll be okay. It doesn't matter what these warnings say. I have confidence in myself. But just because they felt safe doesn't mean they were safe. And the same is true with people who come to church. Sometimes people come to church and they think that just coming to church makes them okay. Having your name on a roll in a church makes you right with God. Praying a prayer one time and then living life for yourself, you're still okay with God and you feel safe. But it doesn't mean you are. 
the only way we know that we are is if we read the word of God and we prepare ourselves for that coming day. God is God has given us warnings here. This is a hurricane tracker. The judgment of God is coming to earth one day, and God wants us to be ready for it. One of the reasons we don't get ready for it is because we don't fear God. And we don't fear God because we don't know the God of the Bible. The God of the Jesus of American culture is very one dimensional. <clears throat> Jesus is love, he loves you, and just wants good things for your life. He's Santa Claus. Every once in a while, he brings presents to your house. He laughs at our sin and just kind of shakes and says, ho, ho, ho. And that's, our, that's the American Jesus. It's why in, in American movies or our bumper stickers, they portray Jesus as just some cute little guy. You know, I, I saw a sticker the other day that someone was selling Jesus, poking his head around a corner saying, I saw that. You know, and we, ha, 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 that's so funny. And, and we just have this kind of silly, almost comical view of Jesus. We have come a long way from the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, that says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, that when Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, speaks, it's like listening to Niagara Falls. This is what God is like. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he cares about you. But we don't mess with him. He's like Aslan. In the Chronicles of Narnia, is he safe? What do they tell her? He's not safe. He's not safe, but he's good. So you don't have to run in fear of Aslan, but you also don't want to trifle with him either. You don't play with his lion. Only the awareness of the holiness of God and his righteous judgment that was communicated to Noah produced in that reverent fear. Notice that his reverent fear followed his understanding of the righteousness and the holiness and the judgment of God. It produced a reverent fear. So what is the fear of God? Often we just like to look at the fear of God, again, single dimensionally, and just say it's simply a respect for God. And I'd say yes and. Because your fear of God, how you view God, depends entirely about how you're related to him, doesn't it? Now, Hebrews 11.7 describes a certain kind of fear of those who walk with God, those who are believers. It describes in Noah, it says that he had a reverent fear of the Lord. And this particular Greek word means that he is to be moved or impressed, motivated by a religious fear. That his life is motivated and moves, is moved forth by his knowledge of God. God reorients his life and his priorities. That's his reverent fear of the Lord. It's this respect, it's this, uh, this power and this nearness that he draws near to. This word fear is uh, in ancient Greek literature was once used uh, by a... Uh, Athenian historian named Thucydides, who used to describe this fear as how men would handle the bodies of plague victims. Now, they weren't running in fear and terror of it. Oh, I'm so scared. But they were aware of the great power that this plague has. And so they would treat it very carefully and circumspectly. They would, uh, they would handle these bodies in a respectful way. They were careful not to trifle with the plague because they knew of its awesome and tremendous power. That's the kind of fear that a believer has of God. We don't run scared of God. In fact, we run to him, but we also don't trifle with God. We have a high view of God. And that only comes through understanding the doctrine of God. But what about unbelievers? Do they have the right to just have a, a, a respect for God? I'm gonna show you a couple of verses in scripture where God commands unbelievers to have a different kind of fear of God. Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To fall into the hands of somebody means that you are at their mercy in their judgment. You don't want to fall into the hands of anyone. In fact, it's the same word used in 2 Samuel 24 to describe David when he says it is better to fall into the hands of God than in the hands of men, that God was going to judge him for counting his armies and taking pride in himself. And so you don't want to fall into the hands to be under their judgment. So if you have a man who's falling into the hands of a living God, they are under his hands of judgment. The Bible says it is a fearful thing. This is not the same word used to describe Noah. This is a Greek word, phoboros. We get the word phobia. How should unbelievers view God initially? Just that he's some funny, I saw that Jesus sticker kind of guy? The Bible says it's you should have a legitimate phobia of God. If you are under God's judgment, you have every right, <clears throat> not just to respect, but to be terrified of a living God. It's the only appropriate response to God. 
It's the way that somebody who has arachnophobia would respond if a giant tarantula was on their shoulder. That's the term that the Bible uses, not just here, Jesus himself, meek and mild Jesus. Matthew 10, 20 says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him. Okay, God is saying fear God in a certain way. If you're an unbeliever, here's how you fear God. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul into hell. Anybody want to guess what Greek word that is? It's from that same root word, phobia. Okay, you should have a terror of God if you are falling into his hands for judgment. You don't have to. You can, be, you can be saved from that judgment of God, but if you are under God's judgment, fear him who can destroy both body and soul into hell. If we don't fear God as an unbeliever, if we don't fear, fear hell as an unbeliever, it's simply, it's not because we're smart, it's because we're ignorant. We don't really realize who God is, and we don't really realize what hell is like. I hear people say sometimes, I want to go there because my family's going there. I want to go there because my friends are going there. Why would I want to go to heaven? It's only because they don't know what hell is like. Revelation 21.8 describes it as a lake of fire burning with sulfur. It's this liquid, it sticks to you. Matthew 25.46 calls it eternal punishment. Revelation 20.10 says that you're tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 14.11 says there is no rest in hell. It's a pain that never gives you a reprieve. Worst pain I ever had in my life was when I had an infected gallbladder and I was in writhing agony for, my goodness, what, like eight hours. It would not, no matter what drug they gave me, they could not end my pain and I was constantly just writhing in agony. I was looking for any position that would just relieve those symptoms for even just the briefest of moments because I was in such miserable agony, worst pain ever, and I couldn't find any position. It was the most helpless feeling I ever had in my life. No matter what I did, how I moved, the pain never let up. That's the pain of hell, and then some. It just never lets up. You say, well, my family and friends are there. I want to hang out with them. You're not even going to know they're there because Matthew 22, 13 describes it as a place of outer darkness, of the gnashing of teeth, that you're in such pain that your teeth are gnashing on one another. So you're not going to be sitting in, in, in hell with a cup of chamomile tea talking to your buddies about how it's so much better in hell than going to heaven. It's pla the place is purely dark. You're not even going to ever see them. And you're not going to be able to have a conversation while you're grinding your own teeth for eternity. No, this, hell is not a place you want to go to. And if you're not afraid of hell, it's simply because you don't understand what you're dealing with here. The best definition of the fear of God I've, I've read comes from John MacArthur. He says, to fear God is to know him as he is and to respond accordingly. That's accurate. That represents both the fear of God for a believer and an unbeliever. We come to an awareness of who God is and we respond accordingly in our life. For believers, one way. For unbelievers, they're going to respond in a very different way. I think the fear of God is best illustrated through the illustration of fire. And part of that reason is because God himself describes himself as fire. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, that we have a high view of God. For our God is a consuming fire. So if God describes himself as fire, I think it's fair to, safe to say that how we view God and how we relate to God is a lot like how we relate to fire. <clears throat> fire can be a really great thing, can't it? <clears throat> Excuse me. When I was a little kid, I grew up in this old 1910 farmhouse, and uh, we didn't use a furnace. We couldn't afford to run it, and so we heated with a wood stove. We went out. I have those parent stories, kids, you know, where you walked both hills up way in a blizzard. And, I mean, I grew up in North Iowa, 20 minutes south of the Minnesota border, and so we'd get 38 below zero. We'd get snow drifts that would be taller than my head. It was it was a cursed place at times. And, but we'd have these kind of cold winters. And then inside that house, though, we had this wood stove, a big wood stove, not some little Franklin stove, big old soapstone wood stove and this, uh, this tiled area around it. And we'd bring that wood in from the outside and we'd start the fire. And it was the central gathering place of the family. And we would come there and we would sit in the living room. We'd talk together. We'd enjoy the warmth of the fire. We'd enjoy the light the fire gives. Uh, there are times we've heated water on the wood stove. There's times we would lay our clothes out because we didn't use the dryer either. Uh, we'd lay our clothes out for school the next day that were wet and they would dry by the wood stove. So it was that thing that we drew near to. Why? Because we weren't afraid of the fire because it was contained. We weren't in danger of being consumed by it. Now one evening, 
I got woke up in the middle of the night, lights getting turned on, people shouting back and forth at one another, and I was a little bit scared. And so we ran downstairs, and we looked at the wood stove, and there's this large steel stovepipe going up from the wood stove, goes through the, through the ceiling into my parents' bedroom and then out the house. And that, it didn't look silver anymore. It was glowing bright red. And what that means is creosote had built up inside the, stimni, the, the, the chimney there in the stovepipe, and it was on fire. We had a chimney fire. And we were terrified now. It wasn't simply a respect of the fire. Kids treat the fire respectfully. It was full on terror. We thought we were going to lose everything. And that's how it is with the fear of God. As a believer, when you know that you're not in any danger of the judgment of God, God is that fire to which we draw near and we warm ourselves and there's light that is given to us from God and we, we, there's fellowship and there's life there. What if you're an unbeliever? It's fire in your house without a wood stove. You're not protected by God. You are going to be under the consuming fires of the wrath of God against sin. And if that is your situation this morning, friends, don't just respect God, be scared. Be afraid of that kind of judgment because the Bible commands you to be. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And I urge you this morning to reconsider the position of your heart and life and give your life to Christ. You say, why don't people fear God so much anymore? I think part of the reason is because we don't talk about God or the fear of God in churches anymore. We only like a God of our own design and choosing. How many times have you talked to people and they said, I would never want to believe in a God that would send someone to hell? Okay, well, then you're choosing to worship an idol, a God that only agrees with you and never disagrees with you. You're not worshiping the true God. You're worshiping a God of your creation. I don't want to believe in a God that's like this or that's like this. And so churches... Uh, often we don't have doctrinal preaching anymore because people don't endure sound doctrine. It's one of the signs of those end times. People don't like to hear about the doctrine of God. What do people want to hear about? Let me tell you a story about my puppy. <laughs> let me tell you a story about how, let me give you three points about how God wants to improve your life, make you wealthy, happy, and he's going to heal you today of all your ailments. Let me give you that sermon. People love that sermon. And that sells, and you can big, build giant churches off that message. Problem is, people never learn what God is like. They never learn to fear God, and they never submit to God. I think the second reason is that we don't fear God is because even in our personal Bible study, if you do it, often we go to the Bible only when we're in big trouble. God, give me help today. What do I do? You know, and that's how we treat the Bible. Or we go to the Bible, and we just want encouragement. I'm sad. I'm tired. I, I've got emotional things going on, God. Just send me to the book of Psalms and tell me how much you love me. And we need those times. I'm not trying to belittle that. We need that from God. But I want to encourage you, every time you open your Bible, every time you read the Word of God to draw near to God, always ask yourself this one question. What did I learn about God? If we haven't answered that question, friends, we're not free to get up from our table or a couch or wherever you're reading the Bible. We have to answer that question. What did I learn about God? Because remember, the chief purpose of the Bible is not to make your earthly life better. It's a revelation of who God is. The very first book, first verse of the Bible, how does it begin? In the beginning, God. And so this book is letting you know from verse one, chapter one, this is a book about God. And what's the last book of the Bible? Revelation. Y'all been in church a while, haven't you? Revelation. And it's not just called Revelation. We just don't like to say the full title. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so a revelation is a revealing. We're here to tell you about what Jesus is like and what he's about to do. And so everything in between in the beginning God and the revelation of Jesus Christ is all a revelation about what God is like. And so if we're reading the Bible not to learn what God is like, but just to benefit my earthly life now, we've missed the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to understand who God is, because when you understand who God is as he represents himself, it will lead to a fear of God, which leads to a faith in God, which leads to a life of faith. Apart from fear, you're not going to live a life of faith. Again, not a phobia fear if you're a believer, but the kind of fear that says a high view of God and says, you don't trifle with God. I'm going to treat God like I treat fire. I'm not going to sit here and play with fire. I mean... Donna, is Danny still playing with fire? I mean, does he, do you have to catch him with a lighter every once in a while? He's out there just burning sticks in the yard for fun. You got to watch him. No, he, he learned early on you don't play with fire. It's the same thing with us as believers. We, we don't trifle with God. We have a high view of him. Well, number two, the fear of God changes how we live. When you understand that something is dangerous, you don't mess with it anymore, do you? 
When I was a kid, I can tell you the first time I stuck my finger in a light socket. I'd like to say it was the only time. I did it in seventh grade science class one time. I had my finger in between the two things and plugged this little timer in. <laughs> uh, but as a little kid, I can tell you the room. I can tell you the light socket. I can tell you which part of the light socket was when I decided, I wonder what happens if I stick my finger right about here. And it was prior to kindergarten. This is one of my early memories. And yet in my brain, it's still like emblazoned in my memory. Don't put your finger in a light socket. You know, I, I've never willingly put my finger in a light socket again. I was taught to fear. You don't mess with it. You don't trifle with it. This is a powerful thing. Now, I'm not scared of it. I don't run from light sockets. I'll come to your house for dinner, but do you have any sockets in your house? But I'll tell you what, I don't, I don't trifle with it. I utilize it respectfully. I have a high view of electricity. And that's the same thing about the fear of God. When, if you have a fear of God, it always results in a radical life change that will affect you the rest of your life. An understanding of the holiness of God without a radical life change means you don't fully understand who God is as he's revealed himself. A true understanding of the fear of God as a believer leads to a radical life change. Was there a radical life change in the life of Noah? When Noah became aware of God and God speaking to him, he's aware of the judgment of God. Did that change Noah's priorities in life? I mean, read verse 7. Read Genesis 6. Noah did something pretty unusual that most of us probably have never done. I doubt any of you are attempting it in your backyard, unless you live in Williamstown, Kentucky. That's where the ark encounter is, by the way. Hebrews 11 says, 11, 7 says, Noah, being warned of God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, did something. He constructed an ark, but it didn't stop there. He did it for the saving of his household, and by this he condemned the world. So a fear of God, when we truly grasp who he is, it always radically alters our life and its priorities, or we don't truly fear him yet. So Noah, to build this ark, was something bizarre. It's something unusual. They've never seen rain come out of the sky, and Noah's saying it's going to flood. You're building a, it's like building a boat in the middle of Iowa or even, you know, Kentucky. I've got this giant sailing ship for the ocean, and I'm building it here in Ashland. We might be able to do that with, you know, the, the river going through here, but in Iowa you wouldn't. And that's kind of like the days of Noah. We've never seen rain. But by faith, Noah's saying, I know the rain is coming. Just because you've never seen it doesn't mean it won't happen. That was Noah's faith. And so God gives him a command. He says in Genesis 6, 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, breadth 50 cubits, and the height 30 cubits. We don't measure in cubits too much, but if you go to the ark encounter in Williamston, Kentucky, you will see just about how big those cubits are. This is an enormous undertaking. This is not something small. This is not a weekend project. He's not building a bass boat here. He is building an ark to carry the animals of the world and to save his family. Answers in Genesis, same people who made that ark, estimate that it took him as many as 75 years. So this is Noah's magnum opus. It's like the whole, the biggest project he ever undertook for God. It was a great undertaking of faith. And I would argue that to build an ark like this would require every ounce of his time, concentration, and even his own money. When he received that warning of God that this earth is going to be destroyed, Noah stopped really investing in the world. He wasn't too worried about playing the stock market. He wasn't worried about his rental properties. He probably wasn't concerned that he got to send his kids to Oxford. He was only concerned about one thing, the saving of his household and condemning the world. Now, I'll tell you what that means in just a little bit. But when you fear God... And you understand that everything that you see here is going to be wiped away someday. It changes how you relate to the material goods that you have here on earth, doesn't it? You say, well, Noah, of course he didn't live for material goods because he knew that in a few years everything was going to get wiped out. Friends, from the time that God warned Noah to the time it actually flooded was 120 years of his adult life. That's longer than any of us will experience as an adult. And so if Noah wasn't going to live that long for the things of this earth because he knew it was going to be destroyed, who are we to live for this earth and its temporary things? It's all going to get wiped away. Does God promise another destruction of the earth someday? He does. Not by water this time, by, by what? Fire. Now, I've never seen that before. How do I know it's going to happen? If God did it once, don't you think he's going to come through again? 
And so why would I live for these things that are temporary? Why would I make that my only intention and life goal is to make my life comfortable and convenient and, and easy and pleasing to me? I'm going to do like Noah did. Noah spent enough money on his family to take care of them, clothe them, feed them, take care of them. The rest of his time, money, effort, and energies was invested into this ark. Why? Because he had, he had a new purpose and motivation in life. And what was it? It was to save people. First of all, we see that Noah was motivated to save his family, don't we? It says, by which uh, he saved, it says, for the saving of his household. In other words, Noah had an intention of leading his family spiritually. He cared about the spiritual health and life of his family. 2 Peter 2.5 describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness, that Noah wasn't just building an ark. He's proclaiming a message. This earth is going to be destroyed, and there's a way out. That was the whole purpose of Noah's life. As soon as he understood the condemnation of God against sin, his whole life changed into becoming a preacher of righteousness. And he began with his own household. Let me ask you this, parents. Who is the chief person responsible for the spiritual health of your home? Is it the church? It's the family, isn't it? The family is the nucleus of spiritual development. The home was created long before the church, long before the temple, long before the tabernacle. That's why you see in Deuteronomy 6, God says, Behold, O Israel, the gorge of God is one. He says, This shall first be on your heart. You be a disciple, and then what will you do? You will diligently teach your children when you stand up, when you lay down, as you go about the day. This is first on our hearts, and then we diligently teach our children. That God intends for mom and dad to be the person who cares about the spiritual health of their children more than anybody else in the world. And we've got to do that because there's going to come a day when our child will stand before God and we won't be there to defend them. The only thing they're going to have is whether or not they live by faith based upon the teaching you gave them and the example they're following. It's important that we guide our families spiritually. We pray with our children. We read the Bible to our children. We make sure that our children in church we make sure that our children don't get consumed with this world. We're not victims. And parents need to hear this. You have the freedom to restrict your child's schedule. And I would argue that if you do not restrict your child's schedule, they're going to fill it with what pleases them. How can you tell if you fear God? Look at what you allow your child to be doing with their time most of the time. What priorities does your child's schedule reflect? Academics and sports, typically. Maybe a job. What should be the top priority as a parent, as a Christian parent, that our child is walking with God? There's Because our child is going to stand before God one day without us. And their, their life will be judged by God. I pray that they're at least in Christ. Because if they're not, you're not going to care whether or not your kid went, had a good college career, whether he had a good career in the future, whether or not he married the homecoming king or queen. You know, you're not going to care about what your child did on this earth. You're only going to, at that moment, you're only going to care, is my child ready to stand before God? And with that kind of fear of God, it motivated Noah to build an ark. But we see it didn't just stop there. Noah was also, it says, by this, he, he reverent fear, he constructed an ark, and by this, he condemned the world. Now, that sounds bad. We're, as believers, we're not supposed to condemn the world, are we? I mean, we're not supposed to be judgmental and all. We need to understand what this word condemn really means here. It's a Greek word, kata krino. Krino means to judge and kata against. And Noah is not judging the world by his own standards. He's not criticizing people by his own preferences. Hey, why don't you dress this way? Oh, some of you aren't wearing a tie. Uh, somebody looking at your life. I mow my yard every three days. Why do you mow your yard once a week? You know, that, not that kind of a critical judgmental spirit. Noah was not communicating a message of judgment to the world based upon his own personal preferences. He was communicating the judgment of God against a sinful world. This world condemned that God has judged against the world, that he has condemned the world. The best way to understand that is to understand when somebody is living in a, a condemned home. They're living in a house that's broken, it's destroyed, it's rotten, it's not healthy for those people anymore. We've got them here in Ashland, I've seen them. My wife and I have walked around the church. I just passed one this morning on the way to church. And there's homes that are boarded up and they've got signs in the door and it's posted. This house is condemned, you can't come in. Why? Because the civic authorities are rude and mean, mean-spirited people, how dare you throw these people out of their house? I'm sure that when civic authorities emptied that house out of its inhabitants, they probably weren't viewed with much love and respect. But was it still the right and loving thing to do? It is. 
What's unloving is to let those people stay there and live in squalor and filth and endangerment to themselves and anyone else who comes in the house. And so what, what, we, what the civic authorities do is they condemn the house. This house is no longer fit to be lived in. And that's what Noah did with the world. When he was building this ark and preaching to the world, he's saying, this earth as it is is no longer fit to be lived in. And so Noah, when he had a fear of God, it radically altered his life's priorities. He was willing to say the difficult things to people. He's willing, to tell, he's willing to tell his family, follow God. He's willing to preach to the world. He's not just condemning the world, saying, y'all are sinners, y'all are evil, y'all think about evil stuff all the time, and you're fans of the Chicago Cubs. And so God is going to judge this world. That's not what his message was. His, his message was simply, this earth is going to be destroyed, like it or not. I want to prepare you for that. By the way, as a preacher of righteousness, here's an ark. Y'all don't have to die. There's an ark of salvation right here, and there's a single door to get in, and you're welcome to come in. But time is limited. That's the same message that we give to people today, isn't it? That this world is in disrepair, and God is going to destroy this earth one day, not by water, but by fire. But there's an ark, and that ark of salvation, and the door is Jesus, and the door is open to you right now, but it's a limited time offer. You don't know when Jesus is coming back. You don't know when he's going to destroy the world by fire. And frankly, you don't know when you're not going to get hit by a distracted driver, you know, texting their friend and putting emojis on something, and they're going to hit you square in the front of your car. You don't know. We don't know when that little piece of plaque is going to dislodge in our brain or in our heart. We don't know. We don't want to be like the people in the days of Noah who were caught by the judgment of God unaware and were unprepared. When one fears God, evangelism will grip our hearts, won't it? It'll become the consuming passion of our hearts and lives. Consider the thief on the cross. I think a great example to look at when we talk about the fear of God is to understand the thieves on the cross. Remember, Jesus was crucified between these two thieves, and they weren't really great guys. They were there justly to be condemned. Well, they're both mocking God at first, but then one of them has a change of heart because he observes the quality of Jesus' life. He learns something about God, and this awareness of God as he truly is caused him to fear God. And what is his first response of fearing God? It's to turn next door and say, hey, buddy, why are you still scorning God? In fact, I'll give you exactly what he says in Luke 23, 40. He says, do you not fear God? Do you not fear God like I do? Will you not alter how you live today based upon this understanding that God is good and will judge sin? And we're about to go there. Will you not change how you live today based upon that knowledge? He says, do you not fear God since you are under the same condemnation? He's communicating the fear of God. He says, and we indeed justly, he understood that they're sinners. For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. He understands that God, being a good God, has to punish all sin. And that this man has done nothing wrong. He understands that Jesus is the answer. There's a lot of theology packed into this little bit. He preaches a good message to him. And he turns to Jesus and Jesus saves this man's soul. But the idea of the fear of God is, will you not allow your knowledge of who God truly is change how you live today, how you speak to people, what you do, your life's priorities, how you spend your money, how you spend your time? The natural response of the fear of God is always evangelism. It's to be afraid for others. You've probably heard of the magician duo Penn and Teller. I think they're, are they still doing out in Vegas? They've been doing magic since I was in high school. I mean, these guys have been around for a long time. And uh, you, got one of the, you got the short little guy that doesn't say anything, and you got the big tall guy who says everything. And the big tall guy, his name is Penn Gillette, and he is a world-renowned atheist. And the reason I say that is this. I want to give you a quote from Penn Gillette. What can we learn from an atheist? He says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. You don't hear that very often. I don't respect it at all. If you believe that there's heaven and hell and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make them feel socially awkward, he says, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? And how much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not to tell them that. 
If, friends, if, the fear of, if our proposed fear of God does not change our lives so that it breaks our hearts for those who are dying and lost and going to hell, I would argue that we don't fully fear God. We don't fully are aware of and understand who God is until it changes like Noah. It changes our life and our priorities. It radically alters how we spend our money. It radically alters how we spend our time. It radically alters how we speak to people. It radically alters our evangelistic fervor. It all flows out of that fear of God. And finally here, the fear of God is rewarded. Hebrews 11 says, 7 says by the, uh, this of Noah, by faith Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith, that, that the fear of God leads somewhere. It has a destination. And for Noah, it meant that he became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith, that Noah lived by faith. They were saved the same way in the Old Testament as we are today. I think it's important to remember that even though Noah is described as a blameless man, someone who walks with God. Noah wasn't saved by his own good works. He wasn't saved because he was better than other people. What does Genesis 6, 8 tell us? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We didn't do anything to deserve it. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that, English majors, faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is all God. The fact that anybody goes to heaven is not because we're better than other people. And it's not because we're more humble or we're more godly or we make God a higher priority. Salvation, just like it was with Noah, is the same way with us today. It's all by God's grace. So that in the end, God doesn't have us to think. No one's kicking open the doors of heaven saying, God, let me hear the applause. God alone gets the glory in eternity, and we sing of him and what he has done. It says that Noah became an heir of righteousness. To be an heir of something means that somebody else worked really hard on it, and then they died. And then they loved you enough that they passed it on to you. That's where our righteousness comes from, not our good works. It's grace. We are heirs of righteousness. Jesus worked hard and earned it. He died. He passes it on to us. Romans 4.13, even with Abraham going all the way back to Father Abraham, it says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be an heir of the world. Once again, something he inherits. It says, did not come through the law, his obedience to the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans 14 clearly tells us it's not through obedience to the law, but it's, it's through faith. Faith in the holiness of God, faith in the justice of God, faith in the fact that Jesus came, faith, faith, that, faith in the fact that Jesus is the only way, and faith in the fact that God loves us enough that he offers it to us freely, that we would be transformed freely by his grace. It's all by faith. It's a conviction of things not seen, that we have built a reasonable conclusion about God based on the evidence that we have before us. Now, how do we know that God is going to judge the world again? Why should we be afraid of falling into the hands of the living God? Like I said, because of the days of Noah, God came through. You know that every major world civilization has a worldwide flood story? Despite the fact that prior to the internet, prior to nations being very closed off to one another, sometimes geographically separated from them, they all have these worldwide flood epics in their history. Greek culture, Mesopotamian culture has the Gilgamesh epic the Babylonians had the epic of Atrahasis, the Matsya Purana of the Indian culture, the Nu'u of the Polynesian islands. Polynesian islands, totally separated. They have a worldwide flood story. The Manu from the New Zealanders have a worldwide flood story. Muslims, the aboriginals of Australia, these guys out there running around in their underwear and still stabbing things with spears to this day, isolated from mankind. They have a worldwide flood story. The Aztecs, the Nords, the Chinese, the South Americans, the Central Americans, and every Native American tribe, we all have flood stories. Why? Because it happened. And it's because if you read through Genesis chapter 10 and the table of nations, they all descend from the same family, and they pass on the same stories to their ancestors. Now, some of them will pervert it, like Romans 1 says. They'll take what is true of the invisible God, and they'll transform him into something else, and they'll create a false religion but they still can't get away from this common shared story from their childhood of this worldwide flood. And God, like I said, promises a similar destruction by fire one day in the future. And God will come through. 
If you ever go to the Ark Encounter in Williamstown, Kentucky, you'll notice that there is a, the most popular photo spot in the entire property is this picture right here, if you see it. If you've ever been to the Ark Encounter, you've seen these doors, haven't you? And what makes it such a popular spot is they understand accurately what these Ark doors represent. You see this light image of the cross on these doors. There is one way to get into the Ark, and there is one way to get into the salvation that God freely offers us. Just because God has punishment for sin coming doesn't mean we have to fall prey to it. We don't have to be cast into hell. We can be invited into heaven. But there's one way. There's one door. And that door, Jesus Christ said, I am the door. Friends, what I urge you to do this morning is just to contemplate who God is. Don't make God into a design of your own thinking. That's not God. That's an idol. Just allow God to reveal the revelation of who God is through this book. Allow God to reveal himself to you. Accept him for who he is. Trust him. Fear God. Draw near to him. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. And for those of you who are believers, continue to seek the God of the Bible. Continue to grow deep in your understanding of who he is and allow it to radically alter and shape your life and your priorities in life. Let it change how you live, change how you use money, change how you love people, change how you spend your time. Because there's only a brief period of time that we have before the ark door closes and the rest of this world who is blissfully unaware of the hurricane that's coming. Friends, let's prepare them for that, can we? Let's close. Father, we thank you as we study your word today that we can look at the lives of Noah and others. We're thankful that we have the ultimate example in Jesus Christ, but Lord, we're thankful that you have given us just dozens of other examples throughout the scriptures of people living by faith, what faith looks like when it's lived out. That faith isn't some just intellectual thing we did when we prayed a prayer one time. That faith is something that we live by every day that we allow faith to radically alter and to shape our lives. Lord, would you radically alter and shape our lives today? May our lives be an appropriate response to the revelation of who you are, God. May we all here leave today with a high view of you, a love for you that causes us to draw near to you, to experience your warmth and your light, but we don't trifle with you. Our fear of you, this reverent awe, God, I pray, will fall upon all of us as believers and that we'd let it shape our actions and shape our thinking today. And if there is any soul here today, God, who does not know you, I pray today would be the day that they fear you and they flee not from you, but to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.